dry. This is one of the most famous events in the life of Jesus. And it's one of the most direct and searching questions of Jesus found in the whole scripture. Who do you say I am? And I want you to notice briefly, I promise you briefly this morning in the context of rich worship, just a couple of things about this passage. First, I want you to notice that it's clearly important to Jesus to know who people think he is. It's important to Jesus to know who people think he is. The answer matters. The answers the disciples give are still where lots and lots of folk are in the world today. Well, they say, some say that you're a prophet, meaning, well, you're a great man, a holy man, a godly man. Uh, Some say you're like John the Baptist, who, of course, has recently died, but his memory is living on and is the way of things. He's becoming more and more important now he's dead and a martyr to the cause than he was when he was alive, important though that was. He's preaching and drawing crowds and calling people to God. They see that's what Jesus is doing. Here is John the Baptist reborn. Today, many people still say Jesus is a great man alongside a number of other great men and women. Or he's a great teacher as if his teaching can easily be disconnected from his life and person. Or he's a great moral teacher because we like his ideas. I always remember one A-level student going back into the dark ages when I was teaching A&S level RE who quite seriously looked at me and said, well, I think his teachings are marvelous, but I don't believe he ever lived. Now work that one out. Is that where some of us are today in relation to Jesus? The message, but not the man. And if it's important to Jesus that he knows what we think of him and who he is, what's our answer today if he poses to us the question? But you, says Jesus, pointing at the disciples, what about you? And so secondly, note the significance of the reply of Peter. Whether he's bold or he's stupid, he's certainly heretical because he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's an astonishing statement. Especially for a Jew. Especially for a Jew who, like all Jews, believes that there is one God and one God only. And now that one God who can only ever be one God has a son. And in a sense, God has become divisible in some way. Some try to dilute the power of this statement precisely because of reasons like that. They point out, for instance, that some of the prophets in the Old Testament are occasionally referred to as sons of God. Ezekiel, for example. And that this means that they are really people who are doing God's work or possess God's power or bring God's glory. But it doesn't mean that they are divine, quote unquote, of one being with the Father, as it says in the creeds. It simply means they're pretty great. But the phrase, the son of the living God, seems to leave you very little wriggle room for doubt. 
Peter takes this deep breath and begins this seemingly impossible journey for a Jewish believer attributing divinity to someone, something other than the one true God of Israel. And note thirdly that whereas Jesus says nothing much about the earlier answers, well some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets, he doesn't confirm or deny that. When Peter makes this statement, you are the son of the living God, you can almost sense the smile on Jesus' face. And the rest of the text basically puts it, correct answer, Peter. Blessed are you, God. God has revealed this deep truth to you. And astonishing though it is, you're right. Now, keep these things in mind, that it's important what the answer is, and that there is a right answer. And now notice when it is that Jesus asks this question of his followers. Because it's not when he first calls them to follow him. It's months ago since he wandered up to two pairs of brothers and then gathered other people and said effectively to them, follow me. They've been together now a long time. They've traveled together. They've eaten together. They've shared board and lodgings together. The disciples have heard Jesus speak many times. They've seen him do miracles many times. They've seen him when he's elated and they've seen him when he's dog tired. They've been with him when he's been laughing and angry and weeping. They've been with him months and months. And now, As he begins to tell them that up to now it's been relatively plain sailing. But from this point on now, they must head towards Jerusalem where he will be arrested and beaten and finally killed. Just as he's beginning to talk about the hardship of the road ahead, he turns round and asks them the $64,000 question. Now who do you say I am? Some of us make judgments and estimations of people very quickly. You go out with a person once and you text all your friends and say, I'm in love. (laughs) You have one session with your physiotherapist or your teacher or your boss at work and you decide that they're absolutely wonderful, there's no one like them. And then as is the human way of things, when you get to know them a bit better, you start to revise your opinions. Isn't our boss great, says a new college. Very nice. But boy, he can lose his temper. And you wait till the Christmas party after a few glasses, you'll see a whole new side of him then. (laughs) Knowledge, you see, of people, in almost all cases, brings a kind of rationalization, a revision, a tempering of views. The more you know, the more you've got to find fault. Which makes this episode of the gospel all the more revealing and fantastic. When Jesus asks this question after so many months together, they've had all the opportunity in the world to say, well, you're pretty special, but I thought you were a bit off when you were up that mountain teaching all that stuff. And when we went to that place, there were some people who came after you'd gone and you didn't go back and see them. What makes this episode of the gospel all the more special is that their estimate of him through these months of traveling with him 
is that he hasn't gone down and down. He's gone up and up in their estimation. Who do you say I am? You are the son of the living God. You're the real deal. And he, and he is. Whether through sad times or glad times, and some of you know sad times and some of you know glad times, to know Jesus is always a difference for good. At a service like this one where parents bring their lovely babies for baptism and they pledge to raise them in the faith of Jesus Christ and where people decide to enter church membership or hitch their faith journey to the wagon of this congregation while they're among us and when people reaffirm that they are baptized, that they do belong to Christ, that they do believe in him, and they do want to continue to live for him because he is the son of of the living God. Nothing less. But I guess when we see people make steps of faith, we're noticing one other important thing. One important step of faith. You see, it is possible to believe and to state Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is Lord. He is Lord of all but not to have reached the point of saying that crucial personalizing further step. He is the Lord and he's my Lord. Not mine in the terms of my possession, Jesus at my beck and call, quite the opposite. Mine in the sense that I am his what he says I will do, where he sends I will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. You see, the Christian is someone who says for the first time, the tenth time or the thousandth time, I'm under new ownership. I am his and he is mine. So, as we've heard brief testimonies, as we've witnessed acts of faith, what about us? What about you? Who do you say he is? And when you give your answer truly, does Jesus smile? Decide even today and do what countless millions of people have found. That to trust in Jesus, things get better and better, not worse and worse. Even in the darkest nights of the soul, better because he is with you. And decide even today to make the Lord your Lord. Amen.